Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that you were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how we turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. God bless you. You can be seated. If I was going to give my message a title tonight, I think I would just simply use positive steps between that condition of being stirred and being changed. I know in meetings like this, we, we get stirred and and we're stirred uh, every message, every message we hear, we're stirred. And, but <clears throat> then we go home and three or four weeks later, we wonder what has happened to us, why we're not changed, and we want so desperately to be changed, and we can be changed, and we can be different, and we can mark some places, and we can remember the spot, we can remember the occasion where God definitely wrought a change in our lives. We've heard a lot of positive preaching here today. Last night, our general superintendent and Brother Anthony Mangan, positive preaching. You need not go home wondering what we were talking about, what these preachers were talking about. You heard preaching that uh, has given you or should give you a definite direction should show you where you need to go and why you need to go that direction and what you need to do when you get there. I, I appreciate the positive sound. For Paul said, if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, how shall men prepare themselves to the battle? Uh, Solomon asked the question in the sixth of the Song of Solomon and verse 10, who is she that looketh forth as the morning? as fair as the moon, uh, as clear as the moon, as fair as the sun, and as terrible as an army with banners. Uh, you know, this world hasn't seen that answer yet. Solomon asked it and waited, waited for one generation after another to be able to see the church when it reached that full moon status, where it could become that army that is terrible, not fierce, but forceful and powerful and moving. God told Abraham, look to the stars. If you can count them and you can count the sand on the seashore, that's how great I'm going to make you. Bible tells us we are the children of Abraham by faith. If Abraham did not live to see that fulfilled, I'm sure that he wondered about it, and he kept hoping, and he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, knowing that he that had promised it would bring it to pass. But as the children of Abraham by faith, I think he was reserving that for us. He wanted us to see the stars 
innumerable and the sand on the seashore, the multitudes of people that are ready to come in. They're ready to make a change in their life. They're ready to repent of their sins, be baptized in Jesus' name for the remission of sins and receive that wonderful, glorious infilling of the Holy Ghost and then walk a life of holiness. We are that church for this hour. I believe with all of my heart, we just keep uh, sounding the positive note, the positive sound. We're going the right direction. We're not compromising. We're not giving in. And we're not giving out either. And we're not giving up. We're holding on. We're believing God in this hour. It remains to be seen what can be done through the church of the living God, men that are willing to humble their hearts, men who are willing to seek the face of God, and men who are willing to do everything in their power to be a part of an end-time revival because of the times we have the world on our mind, and it is on our minds tonight. And the challenging message last night Brother Urshan talking about the value of a soul. And then today, all day, I thank God for it. We've got to come to several places, I feel in my heart, and only the Holy Ghost can bring us there. One thing we've got to have is unity in our diversity. We don't have to look alike, dress alike, and speak the same way. I saw Brother Huntley preaching here today, and I'll tell you, I was on the edge of my seat. I enjoyed it so very much, and I could just see myself preaching like he preaches, spinning around, dancing that little dance, and uh, getting that word out, I mean, directly to the heart. I wish that I could preach that way. We are different. We have our different opinions about things. We have our different personalities, and we have our different style of ministry. There is no way that I could ever be the preacher Dr. Wagner is. My, what a powerful message. I enjoyed that so much, but we can have unity in our diversity, and we've got to realize that, old church of the living God in this hour, we don't have to see everything eye to eye but we can strive toward that unity. Now, Paul tells us in the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians, there's just one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's above all, through all, and in you all. But he went on to say that God gave to the church apostles, prophets, pastors, evangelists, teachers for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ until we all come to the unity of the faith. Amen. And to the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we be no more, no more children tossed to and fro, but somehow we can learn to speak the same thing. He was not talking to a people who were Trinitarians or who had different persuasions of belief as far as the doctrine was concerned. He nailed that down. He settled that fact. There's just one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. There is only one God. But he said there is one thing you can strive toward and work toward, and that's the unity of the faith. What is that unity of the faith? Well, they had already obeyed the faith of the doctrine, and it was not a matter of arguing over the doctrine and seeing eye to eye on the doctrine because you get 20 preachers together, they've got their own opinions about that. But what he is saying 
if we can recognize who is the head of the church and somehow glorify him and somehow give honor to Jesus and let him have the preeminence over everything and look not at the healing but at the healer. Look not at the deliverance but at the deliverer. Look not at what God has done but look at the one who has done it for us. He is before all things. By him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the head of the church, that in him he might have the preeminence. So this is what we need to realize, that we can have our diversities of opinions and thoughts and ideas, but somehow come to the unity of the faith and recognize if he does it, it can be done. If he doesn't do it, it cannot be done. He is the head of everything. Give honor where honor belongs. Honor to whom honor is due. Amen. Not pat one another on the back so much, but give honor to Jesus. He is before all things. I, I certainly want to strive like never before for that unity. I don't want unity at the sacrifice of principle. I don't want unity at the sacrifice of character. I don't want unity at the sacrifice of compromise. I don't want unity at the letting down of any standards that we feel are God-given and have been given to us by men who have wrestled with God through the years to get what's best for the church. I don't feel like we have to do any of that, but we can strive with everything that is within us for that unity of the faith. I could somehow learn to harmonize. Jesus said it, where two or three are gathered together in my name. There am I in the midst of them. That means they've got to harmonize, get together. Sure, we're together in his name. There are hundreds, thousands of us together in his name. But are we in harmony? Are we in unity? Amen. Do we harmonize with each other? I told him the other night, my dad used to provide the only music that he had in those old-fashioned uh, gospel meetings. He played a guitar. I have that guitar today. A little old Martin guitar. It's a it's a collector's item. It at the time uh, he got in a tight, sold it for ten dollars. But I can remember Dad playing that little Martin guitar. He could play it if one string broke. He could play it if the second string broke. He could go on and conduct a service with four strings on the six-string guitar. He learned how to do it making harmony with his music to the Lord. Somehow God honored it because of the prayer life and the dedication. And when he gave the altar call, never had to beg anybody. But if he could ever get them to look at his eye, there was something about it. They would melt and they would find themselves crying and praying around an altar. But he used to take that little E string and then he'd tune all the other strings by that one string. And first thing you know, there was beautiful harmony with all six strings. That's the way we are. We're on this platform tonight, diverse in our opinions and ideas and personalities and methods of preaching. But when somebody gets up here preaching and they sound that little E, I find myself trying to, to get in harmony, harmonize with it, somehow get in harmony with my brethren. So I feel like that certainly will help us. Secondly, I want to mention we need to be fervent to be effective if we're going to change our lives from being stirred to being changed. We've got to become fervent. Fervent in our living for God. Fervent in our lifestyle for the Lord. Fervent in our preaching. My little old preaching uh, doesn't move enough people. I've got to let something happened to me. There's got to be a fervency. Uh, the Bible said it in the book of James, the fifth chapter, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Used Elijah as an example. 
Elijah was a man of like passions as we are. Elijah was flesh and blood. He was not a supernatural person. He was not a superman, but he knew how to get hold of God. He became fervent in his praying. He prayed seven times for rain. He said the servant, he did not give up, nor give out, nor give, give in. He just kept holding on. Fervent. To be fervent, the Bible tells us, we'll get the job done. Fervency is sort of like uh, an explosion taking place in a person's life. There's a chemical change in yeast uh, that causes the bread to rise. Something reacts and interacts within that yeast. The chemical change uh, produces a change. That's what happens to us when we pray. It's not a little patty cake prayer. There's got to be a boiling point. There's got to be a fervency. There's got to be a desperation. There's got to be something that says, I will not let you go till you bless me. And it took Jacob all night long, but there that man reached a boiling point in his praying. There was a chemical change that took place. There was an explosion, an implosion, if you please. Praise God, something happened in Jacob's life, and something took place when he met his brother. We've got to be fervent, to be effective. Uh, I thought about it today. I wanted a revival in my church many years ago. I crawled up in the attic. I stayed there. I said to the Lord, I'm going to stay here until I feel that assurance that you are going to give us a breakthrough. One man can affect a church. One man can affect a city. One man can affect a nation. God bless you, Brother Jimenez. My prayers are with you. I can kneel by the side of a Roman Catholic priest to pray. I can kneel beside anybody to pray. I want us to get on our knees on that soil in Washington, D.C., and I hope that we can pray and be fervent in our prayer, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I perspired in that attic, and I... My clothes were soaked, and my face was swollen, and my hair was out of place. But when I dropped out of that attic seven hours later, I had something down here. I had an assurance in my heart that I was going to have revival. Revival broke out in the next few days, and that revival has been going for 29 years in Life Tabernacle. Don't tell me it can't be done. Don't tell me the hour will not permit it. Don't tell me that one man can't get hold of God and move the heart of God. I'm here to tell you tonight it can be done. You give up too quick, you'll never see it. If you don't want to pay the price for it, you'll never have it. If you're not willing to stay with it, you'll never see it. But when you become effective and fervent, fervent, reach a boiling point, amen, a fermentation take place, a chemical change within you, something will happen out there when it happens in here. And that's got to be, if you want to go home from this conference, be the same you can. But if you go home and say, I'm going to strive toward the unity of the Spirit, and I'm going to work with everything within me, and I'm going to be fervent in my praying so that I can be effective in my godly living and effective in my preaching, and effective to see the job done, then you can have it. And the third thing I want to mention, we've got to rid ourselves of hypocrisy. And I want to write a book sometime, uh, The Writings of a Hypocrite. I feel like that I'm the biggest hypocrite among you. We pretend so many things that we're not. Oh, God help us tonight 
to pull off that cloak of hypocrisy and get down to bedrock business with God. The hour is too late. We may just have one day left. If we do, we'd better rid ourselves of that stinking, corruptible hypocrisy that we wrap ourselves in and feel like that we're better than anybody else and everybody else. We're afraid to rub shoulders with anybody else, and we're afraid to be seen with some certain people. We're just a big, I'm just a big hypocrite. I won't preach to you. I will preach to me. Paul said, I came to you with this gospel, not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. Can we say that tonight? We are satisfied with our beautiful little sermons, and we think we have done it again, and that's all that's required of us till the next meeting. I'm here to tell you it's more than a pretty sermon. It's got to be in power. It's got to be in the Holy Ghost. And it's got to be in much assurance. I had a very unique experience the weekend following General Conference. The folks in Lamar County, Texas, where my dad brought the truth, had been begging me for months to come. They had had a big, beautiful monument erected to the memory of C.P. and Ella Lee Kilgore. And they did not want to have the unveiling till I could get there. And so finally, I just had to take off and go. I was in for a memorable experience, one of the highlights of my life and a time that I will never forget. When I got there, there were people sitting on chairs outside, and uh, there at that little wooded shed where my dad preached his first meeting in Lamar County, Texas, they had erected a beautiful monument to his memory, my mother's memory. And there were eight people that were still alive and Dad had preached there 65 years ago. They began to stand and give their testimonies. I had not heard many things that they spoke of. The professor, one of the professors in the college in Corpus Christi, Texas, drove 550 miles to get to that meeting. And he said, when Brother Kilgore came here, I was two years old. I had not walked a step. My mother carried me to the meeting and laid me on a pillow by the side of her. I had no control of my hands or my feet or my head. And he said, uh, Brother Kilgore was preaching one night, and he walked by, and he prayed for me. And uh, something happened. said, I started wiggling like I wanted to get down, and my mother grabbed me like she was so afraid. And Brother Kilgore said, let him go and said, the minute my feet hit the ground, I started running. Had never taken a step in my life, but God healed me. 65 years later, he's standing and testifying, a dignified professor of the college in Corpus Christi, Texas. Praise God. When, then they took me out to the little pond where they had the first baptismal service. First Jesus name, baptismal service in Lamar County, Texas. And the grounds were covered with people. Uh, they estimated about 5,000 people. They had gone to the edge uh, of the trees, the groves, to have the service and said, my dad preached. And uh, Otis Watson stood up and testified. He said, you know, I had often wondered if Mark 16 would ever be fulfilled. And he said, just as a young man, I saw Brother Kilgore come in here. And uh, he certainly had more than just the word. You know, we're living in the hour when it needs to be more than the gospel just preached in word only. There's a hungry world out there that wants the power 
and they want the Holy Ghost, and they'd like to have much assurance. Amen. And he said, when Brother Kilgore got ready to baptize, there, uh, they gathered around that uh, pond and said, the minute his feet stepped in the water, every snake around that pool and in that pool stuck its head up and started toward the other side. And so Brother Kilgore told the folks on the other bank, get out of the way and let those snakes get out of here. And said every one of those snakes moved together and moved out of that area. And he said, you know, the strange thing about it all, 65 years later, there has never been a snake found around this pond. Something happened that day. I had never heard that before. It did something to me. It lets me know that the word can be preached and there can be power and there can be the Holy Ghost and there can be much assurance, but it's got to be more than a patty cake sermon and a patty cake prayer. There's got to be something boil within us. There's got to be a revival within us. There's got to be a stirring within us. Praise God. And you know what? And you know the reason Paul could say that? If you go down into the next chapter and you find a long list, articles of faith that he lived by. First of all, he said there was sufferings. We suffered so that the word could go forth in the Holy Ghost and in power and in much assurance. Brother Anthony told us Monday night that there were people coming here. One man wanted to come so desperately, had no money. He sold his car to get money to get here. Another preacher and his wife made peanut brittle to make a few dollars to get here. Home missionaries are here. Thank God for Brother Tenney opening the campground. They can stay there and not be charged. I appreciate that so very much. When he told me that, I went to the room and I started to go to bed, but I had remembered, I remembered so many things like that when I was a boy. The many times that Dad would be stranded on the side of a highway and a car full of children, and no money to get food, no money to fix the car, no money for anything. And I've looked at him as he would stand there in a desperate situation. And I thought of those that had paid a price to get here, and I came back to the church. And thank God this is a church that is open night and day, 24 hours. I knocked on the door, and they let me in. And I got to praying and a crying, and, and I said, oh, God, if a man would sell his car to get here, and if they'd make peanut brittle to get here, uh, when we stand in that pulpit, let us have something that will give direction. May we be able to preach something that will give them what they need. They can go back home and realize that they've had a visitation of the Almighty. Hallelujah! And I walked out of there nearly 4 o'clock uh, yesterday morning, but I felt like that God was going to give direction and God was going to give help and divine enablement. Oh, God, help us tonight. Paul said there was suffering, and he said for us to be able to bring the word, uh, the gospel, not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, we were shamefully mistreated. We were put to shame by those that opposed us at Philippi. We were out before the whole crowd, a laughing stock. We were says We summoned courage. We said, courage, you've got to come and take over now. And he said, because of that, we were able to have a boldness uh, to go up and down the streets and preach uh, and then pray at midnight and the house be shaken and the prisoners be set free. And he said, my exhortation 
was not in deceit. I can promise you I did not have a deceitful way in coming to you. We've got to rid ourselves of all the deceit. If we want the Holy Ghost and if we want power and if we want much assurance, and he said, furthermore, not only was the word given to us and we gave it to you, but he said, there was committed unto us a sacred trust. We valued that trust. And it was more than our own lives. And he said, first of all, we were determined we were not going to please men. We were not going to be men pleasers. When you stand behind a pulpit, that's the last thing you need to do is to preach to please men. And preachers, we'd better quit trying to preach to please one another. We'd better quit trying to preach because someone down the road has preached it a little hard. We think we've got to match his spirit and his hardness and his attitude. I say let's get rid of our hypocrisy if we want to have the power of the Holy Ghost and much assurance. Amen. We didn't freeze men and we didn't use flattering words. We didn't come with words of flattery. I remember Bible school days. Brother Andrew Urshan preached and we were anxious to go and say, Brother Urshan, oh, how we enjoyed that message. He didn't pat us on the back and say, fine, thank you. He said, I didn't want you to enjoy it. I wanted you to fear it. There was something about the red-hot preaching of those old-timers. They preached to dig you up and to strip you and to stir you. When they used this word, it was like a sword. Praise God. We need to realize that. I preached the camp meeting out here two or three, four years ago. My son-in-law, the next day after I preached, he said, Dad said, why do you frown so when you preach? I said, well, Mike, I didn't realize that I was frowning. And then I got to thinking later, when you're using a sword, I wish I could smile like Brother Huntley when I preached. But there again, Brother Huntley, it's unity and diversity. My heart was with your heart today. When your heart was beating, I felt my heart beating. Praise God. I got to thinking, you know, if I was going to have an operation, I wouldn't want that doctor to come in there sharpening his sword and grinning from ear to ear and saying, boy, I'm anxious to cut you wide open. I'd want that guy to come in there dead serious. I'd want him to come in there frowning a little bit. I'd want him to say, sir, it's very serious, but I can promise you that we're going to take our time and we're going to only cut where we have to cut. Hallelujah. When we preach the Word of God, we need to be skillful how we handle the sword. You can beat somebody up the side of the head with the sword, or you can use it and let it be that penetrating force that gets right down between the joint and the marrow and becomes the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And he said, furthermore, the third thing, we didn't use a cloak of covetousness. We didn't cover up anything. I'm preaching to me tonight. And then he said, we did not seek glory of men. Four things, he said. That's why he could say we came with this gospel, not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Ghost. and in much assurance. And he said, furthermore, when we came that way, we were gentle. Now, some people interpret gentleness as softness, but not the Apostle Paul. When it came to those sheep, and I thought about it last night. Brother Urshan preached it so beautifully. Gentle. 
I appreciate my superintendent more than he will know. Gentle shepherd, gentle leader. He only gets hard and rough when he's dealing with spirits, but not with men. It's attitudes that he's after and spirits. And I saw him a few days ago sat down with a brother who had been misunderstood in his writings and literature and had not gone far enough and had perhaps gone a little too far while others around the country were criticizing and others were uh, saying hateful things and hurtful things, our general superintendent sat down and I saw the work of a gentle artist as he began to talk gently to another preacher to show him the changes that he needed to make. Amen. Brother, uh, Brother Anthony, don't be naive because you have built a big, beautiful church to think that everybody's going to love you and never find any fault with you because you have a big, beautiful church. Don't be naive because you have a big, beautiful choir that sings and lifts us up every time they sing because it just might be that there's somebody out there with an evil eye. They're just waiting for the first little thing. And then they'll say, I knew it all the time. I knew something was wrong. Somebody will come in here and they'll see a half a dozen folks that'll look like Jezebels and they'll go off and say the church has gone charismatic and it's not holding to the truth and to the standards and to the doctrine. Don't be naive, son. Get ready for it. Amen. But oh, how we need to come to that unity of the faith. We need to bleed when our brother's in trouble. Amen. When Brother Anthony said that our Brother Pew today couldn't be here because he had a, a severe problem he was having to deal with, I prayed and I wept for my brother. Amen. I wept for Brother Pew. That man has poured some things into my life that I'll never forget. And I appreciate him. Oh, that we could have that spirit and that attitude and not seek glory of men. Be gentle. And then the Bible said be, he was affectionately desirous to the extent he was willing to give his own soul, his affections, his emotions, his desires was poured out to the people that he was ministering unto. And then he said, we labored night and day travailing. And then he said, you know how we behaved ourselves. We walked before you holily and justly with uprightness. That's how we walk before you. And he said, we encouraged everybody. Now, if the United Pentecostal Church could live by the 18 precepts that are given there, we could throw our manuals away. We wouldn't need our manuals to go by. We could say 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is our manual. That's our articles of faith. But because we haven't come to the unity of the faith yet, and because I still have some hypocrisy in my heart, I haven't come to that place that I need to be in. But I want you to notice the reason for all of this. Verses 19 and 20. For what is our hope or joy our crown of rejoicing are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Just to get a soul out of hell. To preach a soul out of hell, Brother Huntley. To rescue the perishing and to care for the dying. To have the right spirit and the right attitude. And that leads me to the closing thought. We need an up-to-date Calvary experience. Up-to-date. I had a Calvary experience 
29 years ago. And I had another one right here today. I asked for the tenny a few days ago about a certain young preacher who was rising to the, to the top. And I thought, this young man will be a leader among young preachers. And he said, I'm sorry to say, Brother Kilgore, but he has no Calvary experience in his life. No Calvary. No preacher unless you have a Calvary. My brother, you have traveled far twixt purple east and golden west. The sunset and the polar star have lighted o'er thy transit head. Thy path has led o'er land and sea, but hast thou been to Calvary? If you'll take a trip to Calvary ever so often and find out the purpose for it all, I can promise you there'll be a change in your life. What a change will be wrought in your heart and life. And I need to go back to Calvary ever so often. I need to find out the reason for it all. Because it was there he suffered, bled, and died for my sin-sick soul. He died for me. He showed his love for me. Calvary was the death of a person. It was a person that became human. He put on humanity that we might put on divinity. Calvary was the death of a person. He was uh, the, the, from the beginning of time. God manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on the world, and received up into glory. Madeline Murray O'Hare said it. She said, what kind of a God do you Christians have? that he would say, I'm going to let my son die for a world that's lost. Brother Eckstadt made the statement. He said, God, number one, sat down by his son and said, Son, you see that world down there? I love that world so much, you just don't know how much I love it. In fact, I love it so much, I'm going to let you go down and die for it. Absurd. I love my boy like I love my life. I used to whip in him, and every time I'd get through, I don't care how hard I gave it to him, he wanted to turn and love me, hug my neck. He just wanted to know that I still loved him. And you know, when you're administering punishment like that, you're not in a very loving mood, but he just wanted to know Daddy, do you still love me? Pour it on to me, but do you really love me? But God was manifest in the flesh. Thank God. The only person of the Godhead is in the face of Jesus Christ. He came to this world wrapped in humanity. Thank God and suffered and bled and died for a world that was lost. And while I was praying the other night, I asked God to give me something from his word. And I turned my Bible. It fell open. Exodus chapter 28. Exodus chapter 28 and verse 30. Brother Anthony, would you turn and read that for me right quick? And I'm going to close with this, but I'm going to show you something. Exodus chapter 28 and verse 30. Read it. And thou shalt put in the breastplate of judgment the Urphim and the Thelphim, and they shall be upon Aaron's heart when he goeth in before the Lord. And Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel upon his heart before the Lord continually. God told Aaron, you're going to go in before my presence. You will have a breastplate on. There will be stones in that breastplate that will represent all the tribes of Israel. And in that breastplate, there will be two stones, Urim and Thummim. And it means light and perfection. It's always been a mysterious thing that we've been hard. To, it's been hard for us to put our fingers on and say it means just this. And, it's been something that only God knows the 
the correct meaning of it, but we know it represents light, perfect light, and perfection. And uh, God said, with those stones representing the tribes of Israel, I want the Urim and Thummim, and I want you to bear that. How long did he say? And thou shalt, excuse me, they shall put upon Aaron's heart when he goeth forth before the Lord, and Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel upon his heart before to, the Lord continually. I want you to just put it right on your heart so that every time you go into my presence, it's right there on your heart. Yes. I want you to bear it on your heart. Preachers, if you want revival, you've got to bear it on your heart. Yes. It's got to get on your heart. I thought when Sister Mangan was preaching here, speaking today, and she talked about bus routes and who's going to reach out and get the Spanish speaking, who's going to go into the black communities. I thought of my little wife, and I thought when we began to build our great church there in Houston, I thought of the work and the labor and the toil, the long hours of prayer. There was no such thing as a rest day. We were working day and night, and my little wife, petite, beautiful-looking thing, she had her own bus route, and many Sundays would bring as many as 200 to Sunday school. She went into the black community, an area, a housing community that nobody had ever been into, and she knocked on those doors, she and another lady, and she filled that bus, and the Black Panthers gave her notice, if you come back in here next Sunday, you're going to be in trouble. We're going to be waiting for you. She didn't tell the bus driver. She told me. I said, you're not going back. She said, oh, yes, I am. Those little children will be waiting for me. When she would come home on Sundays after spending hours taking them home, that beautiful hair would be messed up. Her clothes would be messed up. She would have a haggard look on her face, but she'd say they fought in the bus to see who would sit by me. They wanted me to hold their hands. They wanted me to hug their necks. I thought of that when we were averaging over 1,700 per Sunday in Sunday school. There was a little lady that was bearing them on her heart continually. Continually she was thinking about them. Continually. And somebody said, all you've got is in your Sunday school is a bunch of Mexican children. But today we've got five Spanish churches in Houston. And you better be careful what you say because I know of a lonely Nazarene whose color was brown. Better be careful. A lot of people don't like Houston, but every morning when I get up, I bear them on my heart. Alexandra, you better be thankful you have a GA man gun, a Vestaline man gun, and Anthony and Mickey, you better be thankful because through the years you didn't get a church just grow up like this overnight. Every morning somebody had on their heart. Every night when they went to bed, Alexandria was on their heart. We used to go to conferences. Brother Mangan was off in space somewhere. You try to talk to him. He lived in another dimension. He wasn't even down on our level. If we'd talk a little while, he'd say, isn't there, any, isn't, isn't there somewhere we could go and have a prayer meeting? Can't we pray? He had Alexandria on his heart. He bore them on his heart. That's why you have what you have here today.
my heart, Houston. I've got you on my heart because there was a lowly Nazarene that carried me on his heart. Born into the world, crucified. His pillar was a cross every night. He knew that he was going to Calvary. Gethsemane, he clawed the ground and prayed until the sweat became as great drops of blood. He was carrying me on his heart. He's carried the world on his heart. We're in Alexandria tonight because we have the world on our minds. Thank God we can get this gospel to the whole world. We can have revival in every crossroad in Louisiana. We can have revival in every city, every little village. We can have revival. We just need to put it on the breastplate and carry it on our heart. Here I come again, Lord. I'm bearing it on my heart. I've got it on my heart. I need another Calvary experience. I need to hear what I heard today again. I need to get broke up all over again. I need to melt before the Lord. I need to remind him, Lord, without you I can do nothing. Preacher, put on that breastplate. Go back into the city limits of your city and say, City, I've got you on my heart. I've got you on my heart. And it may not mean a lot to anybody else, but I've got you on my heart. You might as well get ready. I'm going to see you saved. And it was there continually. Continually. You don't take a vacation from it. You don't sleep soundly and get away from it. You don't go overseas and get away from it. Oh, God. How much more I can do for God in Houston with that on my heart. Many times.